0: for checking out the Tennessee Holler Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Tennessee Holler Podcast Network. Subscribe to and support the Holler at www.tnholler.com to help us fearlessly yell the truth about Tennessee. And be sure to subscribe to the growing family of Holler Podcasts while you're there. You can
1: also follow the Holler on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the TN Holler. Tennessee. 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 Tennessee.
0: Tennessee. Tennessee, Tennessee, Hi everybody, share the feed if you will, we have a special one today, a conversation I'm excited to have here with Stuart Stevens, a lot of you probably already follow him on Twitter, at Stuart P. Stevens, he is a very accomplished guy who has a book out right now that you just saw the graphic of. Called It was all a lie, how the Republican Party became Donald Trump. I think he's being very intentional about the way he's wording that. We're going to find out what he means by all that right now. Before we get started, we are the TN Holler. TNHoller.com, at the TN Holler on Twitter and Facebook is where you can find us. We're a rabble-rousing group here in Tennessee. We appreciate all the support everybody's given us. We have hollers all over the state. So follow all the hollers. And now let's talk to Stuart. Stuart, how are you today?
1: I'm good, brother. Uh, glad the Republican convention is over.
0: <laughs> yes, that is the good news. It's over. Uh, it felt like it was never going to end, uh, but finally it, I, it I, did. It I'm did. I'm not
1: entirely sure that Trump's speech isn't still going on somewhere. Um, <laughs> it probably is. And I'm, it glad so long. I'm glad at least they cut away from it.
0: Yes. Well, just for the people who don't know who Stewart is, he's he's written a bunch of books, appeared all over the place, and for 25 years he was the lead strategist, and media consultant for some of the nation's toughest political campaigns. And he worked as a Republican. Uh, we don't have many Republicans on here, so it's nice to see you on here. I appreciate your voice. I appreciate that you're speaking out. Can you just rattle off some of the campaigns you worked on for us?
1: Oh, Lord, man. I worked on um, five presidential campaigns. Uh, did Bob Dole. I did George Bush in 2000. Uh, George Bush reelect. I worked for Governor Romney. I got involved late in 2008. And then I worked for Governor Romney in 2012, now now doing the Lincoln Project. Um, I worked for you know Governor Haley Barber, Governor Bob Riley in Alabama, um, Governor Charlie Crist in Florida, um, Senator John Cornyn, Texas, Senator John Kyle, Arizona. Uh, I could keep going on. Ha- ha- I figured it out half the work for Republican governors or senators in over half the country.
0: Okay. So what made you a Republican? Let's start there.
1: Uh, I can tell you, um, you know, I grew up in Mississippi in kind of the bad old Mississippi burning days. Uh, and the only Democrats then were old line segregationists like uh, John Stennis and Big Jim Eastland. Um, there was a uh, guy named William Winner who had gone to Ole Miss with my parents. uh, And he was running in 1967 against the last avowed uh, segregationist who ran for governor. Um, It was in the Democratic primary because there was really only the Democratic uh, Party. So I worked for him. uh, And, you know, I did the stuff you did when you were a kid. I like walk precincts and whatever. Um, And that got me interested in politics. I then was a page in a congressional office for a congressman from Jackson, Mississippi, which is my hometown, named Thad Cochran. Now, Thad had been the first Republican elected uh, in Mississippi since Reconstruction. And he was in the model. Uh, you see these guys uh, in his early 30s, uh, real smart guy, uh, definitely uh, a lot more moderate, uh, uh, progressive even on race than the old line segregationist. Um, he was a breath of fresh air. And I worked for him as a page. And then when his uh, he ran for the Senate in 1978, and his chief of staff ran for Congress, and I got to know his chief of staff being a page. Um, And I was at UCLA Film School at the time. Um, And he called me up, and he was running against Senator Stennis's son. You know, this immensely powerful U.S. Senator's son. Nobody thought he'd win. He was just like this staffer from South Mississippi. and he said, basically, like, I can't afford to hire anybody to make commercials. You're going to film school. You have to make commercials for me. I said, well, that's great, man. He said, like, the trouble is, I don't know how to make commercials. I just make these stupid little films. Uh, he goes, that doesn't matter you gotta do it. So I did, and he ended up winning, um, mostly through nothing I did. He was just the right guy at the right time. And then I found out that people would actually pay me to make commercials for him. And I could do it kind of like migrant labor work at the time. Nobody wanted to hire me to write, um, so that's how I I became. And once you start working on one side of the fence, and I started on the Republican side, it's very difficult to change. I mean, in a perfect world, you could just work for uh, the person, like a lot of people vote just for the person, not the party. But professionally, it's really hard to do. You end up where nobody trusts you. So that's how I ended up uh, working for Republicans.
0: So you sort of saw the transition from the old Republican party to the new Republican party over the course of of many decades. Uh, Obviously what we're seeing now is the end result, but were there moments along the way where you started to feel like, I don't know if this is lining up with the way I feel anymore? Like, did this happen all at
1: once? No, I mean, look, In 2016, a lot of people were wrong about Donald Trump, but it really is hard to find anybody who was more wrong than I was. I didn't think the guy would win the primary. I didn't think he'd win the generals. So he did. So, you know, then all these Republicans who I thought would have stood up to Trump just sort of crumbled. So there was a period there where I kind of told myself, like a lot of people did, well, this isn't really the Republican Party, you know. It's Donald Trump has hijacked the party. But I really couldn't. Say that honestly? I mean, he's head of the Republican Party. He's really popular in the Republican Party. How do you say it's not the Republican Party? I mean, it's a true statement. The Republican Party is the party that endorsed uh, Roy Moore and attacked John Bolton. Um, so I just started asking myself, how did this happen? Which really led me to write this book. So I went back and I traced the post World War II history of the modern Republican Party. And it was really fascinating. Um, A lot of this stuff I kind of half knew uh, or knew wrong, but I really did a lot of work on this and a lot of reading. And the Republican Party is not an obscure subject. I mean, there's a lot of really great books and studies on it. Um, And it was clear even going back to the 50s, there was two strands to the party. So there was like a Dwight Eisenhower governing sane, boring, competent uh, strain. And then there was like a Joseph McCarthy strain, anti-communist, crazy, Uh, racist strain, And those two existed uh, in contention um, and played out. And, you know, in 1999, I went to work for uh, George Bush, who's governor of Texas, moved down to Austin when he was running for president. Now, at the time, you could make a case that a lot of what conservatives, Republicans had been for, they were sort of a victim of their own success. So like the Cold War, Uh, you know, anti-communism was a big conservative thing. Well, okay, we won the Cold War. Welfare had been a big conservative issue. Welfare reform. Well, Bill Clinton brought in welfare reform. Many famously ran on ending welfare as we know it. Crime had been a big issue for conservatives, but crime by 1999 was on a sharp decline as it's continued to this day. Um, Though you wouldn't know it listening to Donald Trump, but it's much safer. Um, And, uh, pro uh, legal immigration, you know, Ronald Reagan announced in front of the Statue of Liberty. Um, So what I think George Bush did, I know he did, he really asked himself, what is it to be a conservative in this new era? And out of that came this concept of compassionate conservatism. And for Bush, a lot of this revolved around education. Uh, He was really passionate about education. He knew a lot about it. Um, He, uh, once he got elected president, you know, the first big piece of legislation he passed was No Child Left Behind, uh, education reform. And if you go back and you look at uh, the signing of that bill, which was the spring of 2001, uh, it's amazing when you look at this, man, because I mean, Ted Kennedy's like standing over his right shoulder. And here's this Republican president signing this bill. I mean, today that would be presented like evidence in a war crimes tribunal in right. the Republican Party. Um, so, you know, we thought that we were on the right side of history and the Republican party had this huge problem that had existed since 1964 of failing to attract African Americans. So believe it or not, uh, 1956, Eisenhower got almost 40% of the black vote. I mean, hell Nixon got like 33%. Um, then it, Jackie Robinson campaigned for Nixon. Then it fell off a cliff uh, when Goldwater was opposed to the civil rights act. So seven percent in 64. And it never came back. Um, A huge failure. But we used to talk about that a lot as a failure. And we used to talk about a big tent and talk about the need to change. In 2005, Ken Melman, who um, was chairman of the Republican Party, went to the NAACP and apologized for the so-called Southern strategy, which was a strategy evolved by the Nixon White House to Alienate African Americans from the Democratic Party uh, with this sort of assumption that African Americans would either vote uh, Democratic uh, in 90 plus percent or get them to vote for a third party or get them not to vote. Um, So now with Trump, uh, I I just think we have to conclude that the side of the party that I thought was the dominant side, call it the dominant gene. while we thought that those who are on the dark side were the recessive gene, uh, that we were wrong, and right. the party is very comfortable now as a white grievance party, unlike anything we've seen in American modern American history.
0: You say burn it to the ground and start over is the way to deal with this. Uh, and you also talked about how you know you, you use as a quote in the beginning of the book this yeah. Lee Atwater quote uh, using the N word and basically saying that you know, the white grievances that you're talking about are really just euphemisms for racism. Yep. Uh, but you had to know, I guess there's a sense from the outside that this playing footsie with racists, with a, which there are a lot of in this country or people who yep. you know don't, racism is a whole issue that we could talk about all day, but yep. there had to be a sense that there was footsie being played with them all along. And especially when Obama won and there was the unleashing of the tea party and the backlash to him, you know, I I guess, was there not a realization of this earlier than just recently? You know, that that's the hard part for people from the outside.
1: When I wrote this book, one of the, aspects that really drew me to qualities that drew me to the republican party was a concept of personal responsibility so and we've completely lost that now i mean trump is the greatest victim in the world to hear him talk the party is a great victim party now so it seemed to me that if i actually believed in personal responsibility that i should begin with personal responsibility writing this book and i really tried to do that yeah on the first page of the book i say blame me you know there's a, a style of book about washington basically falls into like if only they had listened to me, you know, all these things wouldn't have happened. Well I didn't want to write that book because I mean they did listen to me. I mean I I I hope win more races than anybody else out there. Um so I have kind of two contradictory feelings about this. Um one is uh I did see this side. I mean it was out there. You had to see it. On the other side I worked for the candidates that we saw was fighting that side. Mm -hmm. Um You know, I didn't work for Newt Gingrich. I didn't work for Jesse Helms. Um, And uh, I worked, uh, well, one of the last races I did was uh, working for Thad Cochran, my old boss, um, when he was running against Chris McDaniel uh, for the Senate primary. And Chris McDaniel, Republican primary in Mississippi in 2000, uh, what was it, 2014. was really running as an early harbinger of Donald Trump. So I saw myself working to defeat that element of the party. Um, And we were pretty much in most of the races I did successful, but they were winning elsewhere. And then with Donald Trump, what's just astounded me is the complete collapse of the party and opposition, except really for Mitt Romney and a few other people.
0: And do you think, do you think that was, do you think that's because of naked ambition? Like they're all just thinking about themselves or are they actually aligned with the things that he's pushing?
1: Listen, you know, I know a lot of these people. I I have never talked to a Republican elected official who thought that Donald Trump is qualified to be president. Not one. And it's the most, it's, it's the damnedest thing you ever see um in 2016 when i went out and attacked trump a lot on television for the first time i would say uh, and then at least a third of the republican party hierarchy was emailing me saying i'm really glad you're doing this we have to beat this guy i can't do it for this reason or that reason but you know god bless you for doing it and here's something else you ought to be saying those emails continued right up to about 10 o'clock on election night and then they stopped and Then I started getting these emails like, uh, maybe would you mind deleting that email? Um, and you know, My feeling's pretty simple. I feel the same way as I did on 8 o'clock on election night. Um, I, this is why I call the book, all, It Was All a Lie, because it, there was a group of beliefs that I would have said that the Republican Party uh, was based on. Disagree on some issues, that issue, but you know, personal responsibility, character counts, strong on Russia, pro-legal immigration, uh, free trade, um, all of those I would have said were, were bedrock principles. So it's not that the parties drifted away from those, the party now is against those, where the anti-character counts, the anti-free trade party, where the Putin's poodle party. Um, so you have to ask yourself, do people abandon deeply held beliefs in three years, four years? My conclusion is they don't. I think it just means you really didn't believe this stuff. Um, I, I, and some other people really did. So, what percentage
0: I, do you think is is? Um, I mean, I guess we know what percentage, right? We know that the Trump has the support of ninety percent of the party, right? So that's, I guess, what what you're talking
1: about here when here
0: you say it needs to be burned
1: down. The, here's the weird thing: if you hooked these people up to a lie detector test and said, "Do you think character counts in a president?" Uh, they would say yes, and they passed the, it. They passed that lie detector test, and yet they support Donald Trump. If you said to them, "Do you believe um, that Russia is a threat to the United States and that we should not allow the Russians to interfere in our elections?" They'd overwhelmingly pass that, yeah. and yet they don't do anything. So it's really cowardice.
0: It's so- cowardice, but it's also. It's almost that their prevailing motivating factor is to keep Democrats out of power because they are more concerned with not allowing the things to happen that Democrats want to see happen than they are prioritizing morality or any of the other issues.
1: I actually think it's worse than that. Um, I think they don't want Democrats to win because they want to be in power for power's sake. Right. I don't think that they're really worried about what Democrats are going to do because gotcha. a lot of the stuff there, I mean, now that's a relief. The, <laughs> the Republican party's to the left of Bernie Sanders on trade. We're still yeah. left of Bernie Sanders on Russia for heaven's sakes. I mean, you know, Bernie might've honeymooned in Russia, but he didn't like Mary Putin. Right? <laughs> right. Um, So it's why, you know, I I don't think we've ever seen anything like this in, certainly modern American politics and probably in American politics, which is the total collapse of a party. And it's always hard when you're in the middle of something to, to see it and understand it. But I think that's what's happened here. The only thing I can liken it to is the collapse of the so- or communism in the Soviet Union, where, you know, you see something like Chernobyl and what the mm-hmm. party said it was for and was, was so disparate from what it really was that it just collapsed. Right. So I think that's what's happening with, with the Republican Party now, which is why I say it's really not a political party. It's a cartel. A exactly. Senate. It, I completely really agree. It exists to elect Republicans. Right. Nobody asks, like, what is the higher moral good of OPEC? It's like they sell oil, dude. Or right. like narco cartels. or They sell dope. So why does the Republican Party exist? to elect Republicans.
0: Well, and they just admitted this, right? When they didn't actually have a policy platform, platform. the only platform they had was follow the leader. That that was. I
1: wrote a pretty bleak book about the Republican party. I finished about a year ago. It turns out I was overly optimistic. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I never would have thought that the party wouldn't even have a platform, even a pretense of anything, but, you know, a a Fuhrer pledge. Uh, It's a disgrace. Yeah. Absolute disgrace.
0: So you say ha- burn it to the ground and start over. How do you do that?
1: They're going to lose. It doesn't matter what I say. It's what's going to happen. And if you want to know what's going to happen to the Republican Party, just look at California. Um, it, it wasn't very long ago that California was the beating heart of the Republican Party. Yeah. Um, the electoral citadel. Um, now it's in third place, not second, third place. And it's largely irrelevant to any large public policy decisions um so that's what's going to happen to the republican party now how long will it take you know it's like the subprime mortgage how it ends is easier to predict than how long it takes uh it might take longer trump could win but it's going to happen yeah Look, you know the statistic that i saw recently i mean it just blew my mind of americans 15 years and under right the majority are non white. So I'm saying the odds are pretty good. They're going to turn 18 and still be non-white. <laughs> and what that means to the Republican party is a death sentence. That's unless right. and Unless the party changes and the party has no desire to change.
0: They're not going to change what they're focused on and said is voter suppression and, you know, changing the rules, gerrymandering. They understand that the demographics are moving against them. They understand that, you know, younger voters are becoming actual voters and Older voters are going to die off in the next two decades or so. But the question is, how long does that take? I think you hit on it. And how concerned should we be in your mind, A, that he may win again, and B, that he may lose but say he won? You know, How worried are you about the immediate effects of this n- next election and how far down the rabbit hole we can be, be and already maybe are?
1: Listen, I'm the most anti-conspiratorial guy in the world, you know, because I actually worked in the system. And like, when you work in the system, you realize it's actually kind of boring, you know, and it's pretty mechanical. And, you know, um, it's, it's like voter fraud. I, I mean, voter fraud is kind of like elephantitis in the United States. Are there cases? Yeah. But there's a reason we have a national cancer center, not a national elephantitis center. It's a lot more of a problem, cancer. Um Having said that, I think the next uh, period between now and the election is the most dangerous period in America since the Civil War. Um, I think Donald Trump, he's not going to ask permission to try to uh, destabilize this election. He'll just do it. And he's tested Republicans, and it's pretty clear that most Republicans want to stand up to him. And Barr, who you know, I, I hope is going to be criminally investigated after he's left office, as was John Mitchell, um, he's not going to stand up to him so uh, it cannot be overestimated uh how dangerous this is um, Trump is a gangster and I know a lot of these people around him it's not like these people working for Trump in their presidential race it's not like all of a sudden they woke up and wanted to get elected wanted to work in presidential politics these castoffs and crooks have wanted to work in presidential politics just nobody would have anything to do with them I mean like Steve Bannon and these I mean now indicted Steve Bannon. Um, this guy, Jason Miller, who's kind of running the campaign, he was my intern. Yeah. Um, Mana, Manafort. Manafort. Yeah. yeah. yeah they're criminals. Um,
0: they're all criminals.
1: They're criminals. But, I mean, the way a whole separate thing. I mean, I've known Paul since the 80s. Uh, I mean, the weird thing is everybody knew Paul was out there as a pirate. I mean, he was out there, you know, under the Jolly Roger, for Christ's sake. Um, that Trump hired him was amazing. Well, um, he didn't
0: really hire him, right? He just sort of let him volunteer. Uh, I, where are you on the Trump-Russia stuff,
1: I guess I should ask? Well, I mean, the, I am where what happened happened. There's no question that the Russians interfered to try to help elect Donald Trump. Is, the he, in their,
0: else, is he in their pocket?
1: Um. I, it's a very interesting question. I've always thought this was about money. I mean, the Trump organization, uh, you know, after after he went bankrupt six times, um, I think that there's definitely a reason he won't release his tax returns. Um, And I think that there are uh, definitely financial ties to the Russian uh, mobster oligarchy, With Donald Trump, you know, there's a lot of interesting books about this. Craig Unger wrote a book uh, called, I think, Trump and the Mob, the Russian Mob. You know, as the Soviet Union broke up, the Russian mob came to the United States, and they uh, took over a lot of the construction business. Trump was in the construction business. He Mm -hmm. worked with a lot of these mobsters. Um, Michael Cohen's father-in-law is someone with those connections. Um, So I, I don't think. Uh, There's any question about that? As far as like the sexual stuff and this and that, I have no idea. Um, Trump's a pretty hard guy to shame. I mean, this is a guy who talks in public about having sex with his daughter. Yeah. You know, most people don't. Um, So I don't know. But I think he's definitely compromised. Uh, He also just isn't a, a patriot. Yeah. Trump, Trump is a perfect example of an unassimilated immigrant for all his talking about immigrants. You know, he, he never, his family, they never adopted American values. It's the same like Robert Murdoch. You know, the most dangerous immigrant in America is Robert, Rupert Murdoch. They just never understood what it was to be an American.
0: Well, you think that has to do, I, you know, it feels like there's a detachment from reality just having grown up with so much money and you know, the upbringing of his father who may or may not have been at a Klan rally in New York arrested there. And, you know, he was a a slumlord, a landlord that, you know, was blatantly racist, according to people. So it seems like he may have been raised that way. Uh, But yeah, there's just a lack of empathy and it feels like it permeates the entire party. I appreciate that you've been willing to speak out. I think, you know, your voice is uh, you know the never Trump conservatives or the no longer Trump conservatives, however you want to put it, are are important voices. Uh, what advice would you give to Democrats right now as they try to become the gasoline on the fire used to burn that party down? I think we're a healthier country when we have two strong parties. So I think we'd be doing them a favor by <laughs> defeating this person. Well, uh, w- what should Democrats be thinking about from your perspective?
1: Look, I, I, people say, why well, aren't there a third, three parties, in an alternative party in the country, which is a logical question. I really think there are two, par- three parties. There's one party, which is Republican Party, which has really just become a party of no. Um, and then there's really two parties inside the Democratic Party, call it an AOC Sanders wing and say a Biden wing. And. Uh, to my mind, all the big questions facing the country are going to be decided within that Democratic Party struggle. So if you take like national health insurance, in 20 years, is America going to be the only Western democracy that doesn't have national health care? No, it's not going to happen, man. What is that going to be is going to be determined inside the Democratic Party. Yeah. the Republican Party is not really going to have anything to do with it. They've had a chance to, to offer an alternative. They're not. They're not going to do it. The same thing's happened in California. Um, I think you see a lot of people who are now Democrats who would have been Republicans, uh, moderate Democrats, who would have been Republicans in another uh, era. Um, so uh, I think the main thing that Democrats, I would hope, is uh, continue to try to be uh, a big tent party and to stay away from purity tests. Um, that, that the device, the, the complicated, contradictory nature of the Democratic Party reflects America. And that's a positive, not a negative. And I, I think that that's ultimately a policy string. I mean, I, I think I, I always go back to this example, you know, if you take like a 35 year old Republican teacher, their opinion on taxes is probably pretty much the same as say a 65 year old Republican hedge fund manager. So probably both of them will be white. And they'll probably both be for tax cuts. You take a 35-year-old Democrat teacher. Well, first of all, the odds are greater that that person won't be white, And they'll probably have a different view on taxes than a 65-year-old Democratic hedge fund uh, manager. I think that diversity is a strength. Now, it can be a pain. And, you know, the Sanders people should have done more for Hillary Clinton. um, But ultimately, uh, that's more reflective of the country. And I think that I hope that this election uh, is going to be one in which the Democrats will continue, as I thought they did very well in the convention. And and I'm a big fan of the Biden campaign. I think the Biden campaign is running a superb campaign. Maybe a historically great campaign. We'll look back on it. Um, but they're doing old-fashioned politics. You know, ultimately, politics is always about addition, not subtraction. And uh, the Democrats seem to realize that at this moment. And I just hope it stays.
0: Well, I appreciate your voice. Um, you know, obviously always appreciative of anybody who is fighting the same fight. Um, you know, I I would have a little bit of pushback about some of these things because of where my politics lie. But I agree we do need to be inclusive and you know, be the ones that are talking about unity and be the adults in the room, which I think the Biden campaign yep. is is doing a lot of. Personally, I think this election is has always been and will always be about Trump. And, you know, I sort of have felt like no matter who was on the ballot, it probably mattered less than it ever has because people are going to be coming out to vote for or against this guy. And he's sort of setting the terms. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it is about unity and and we do need to, to bring people into the tent. So I appreciate that you're out there talking about this. The book again is it was all a lie how the Republican party became Donald Trump. You should definitely get Stuart's book. Uh, Stuart, what, what, how do you want to leave people here? And, you know, what, oh, listen, the, I,
1: I, think, um, I, I think it's not an exaggeration that, for a lot of years to come, we're going to look back on this period between now and the election and ask ourselves a fundamental question, you know, at a time of crisis in America, did you step up? You know, most of us go through life. I certainly do trying to avoid moral crisis because they're kind of a pain in the ass. You'd rather live your life, but this is a moral crisis and it's a governing crisis and it's a true crisis for the country. Um, if Trump has a second term, I think this country will be virtually unrecognizable after four years um so th- this is this is our moment this is the moment where we prove that we're worthy of what the greatest generation gave us and i, I just hope everybody stays focused on that uh and puts the head down and just does the work uh democracy is boring it should be boring uh, it's hard work um but it's important work and we're going to win or lose so let's win
0: well, I'm with you. Uh, I'm very excited to be bored again, and I hope that we can be bored with this next president That's in January. But definitely these next 70 or so days will will tell us a lot about our country and ourselves. Stuart, thanks for speaking out. You, uh, I, I'm looking forward to checking out the, the rest of the book, and everybody should pick it up. And please stay in touch with us, and maybe we can talk again down the line. Follow Stuart at Stuart P. Stevens on Twitter. We're at the TN Holler. I'm at Canoe, K-A-N-E-W, on Twitter. And uh, definitely give us all a follow. Stuart, thank you very much.
1: Okay, buddy. Take care now. Take care. All the best.